But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. The WTA season is over. Well, not quite. We're in Glasgow for the BJK well, Cup, which we will not be talking about on this episode. Yes, but you know what I meant. Yes. The WTA finals have ended. Caroline Garcia is the year-end champion. And, wow, what a career turnaround. One of the questions we asked on the last episode was, of the eight women, well, of the seven outside of Sviantec, was there one who could possibly stop her from winning? And while Caroline didn't directly stop her from winning, she was the one who lifted the title. Yeah. I I think we both said on the last episode that Sabalenka was somebody who could stop Iga, you know, on a, on a good day for Arena and on a so-so day for Iga, could kind of boss her around on court, and that's what we saw. Uh, you picked a, a number of players who could beat Iga, so I feel like I I was a little more right. Right, but all of them made the semifinals. They did. Wow, such good picks. Yeah, my top four were the semifinalists. I wasn't going to say that, but you, you brought it out of me. <laughs> Let's start with the final itself. Garcia beats Arena Sabalenka in straight sets. The first set... Super close. No break points for either player. We are getting... This is a big babe tennis final. If you like big serving, first strike tennis, this is it. And this is largely what got both women to the final. Was trust in their serve. On Arena's side, even when the serve wasn't as reliable as she would have liked it, being stubborn and continuing to go for those big serves, that's what helped her boss around Iga. That's it, the story of Arena in 2022, right? Mm-hmm. Stubbornness. Stubbornness to push through the dire serving troubles that she had to start the year, to push through a season that was off the rails, to finish up with a, a really good second half, make the WTA finals, and then coming this close to winning it all. Mm-hmm. And now she was ranked number two. For a lot of the season. And her play didn't always reflect that of a number two player. There was a chance that she wasn't even going to qualify for these finals. Based on the last few weeks of the season. But like you said, I think her stubbornness is one of her very best qualities as a player. I don't know where she is in the double fault standings. But she's pretty high up there. Multiple hundreds. And she kind of just laughs it off at this point. She has a huge serve. And sometimes it goes bad. And for Garcia, she led the tour this year in aces. Caroline Garcia hit the most aces on the WTA tour. Mm-hmm. When she got her game together mid-season, she really came all the way correct. We got a few hints of what was to come from Garcia in February in Lyon, where she beat three seeds in three set matches to make the semifinals. And then she wins the Roland Garros doubles, wins the singles title in Bad Hamburg, beating Iga in Warsaw to win, and then qualifying and going all the way to win the title in Cincinnati. Semi-finals at the U.S. Open. So this was a steady build in the second half of the season to this ultimate coronation for her and a return to her career high of number four in the WTA rankings. She's been to number four before. She has won Masters 1000 titles, sorry, just WTA 1000 titles, Obviously in Cincinnati, but a few years ago in the fall Asian swing, she had never been to a final of this stature, and neither had Sabalenka. Both of them, I I think Caroline actually was quite nervous walking out there, but they both played such a tight first set, a really entertaining first set, and unfortunately for Arena, the match kind of got away from her in the second, but I think all in all, it was a it was kind of an interesting showcase for the WTA season. Iga had dominated so much of it, and it was kind of, 
you know, no shade to Iga, but it was refreshing to see someone else, two other players, fight it out on that final stage. Uh, I, I suppose it would be interesting if you are somewhat of an Iga hater. That's not it. <laughs> <laughs> Iga has nearly, what, almost 12,000 points? Like, she, she's had an amazing season. You don't need to win the WTA Finals to cap it off, right? right. Like, that doesn't put a damper on your season. But it would have been a nice icing on the cake. Yes, but we need need intrigue. We need women who can beat this woman. Okay. I think overall this is a really, really good development going into next season. You cannot have Iga and the Seven Dwarfs. To paraphrase, I forgot which uh, Sports Illustrated writer said that in the 90s about Steffi and the Seven Dwarfs. Well, you had Serena and the Seven Dwarfs. You had no problems Mm, with that? Not quite. No. We always had Venus. We always had Sharapova. Okay, but there were many seasons where Serena was just rampant, dominant, and you were not calling for this. That's all I'm saying. Oh, sure. I mean, when I was always rooting for Serena to beat everybody like love and love. I loved watching blowouts when it was my fave, so I will never criticize fans for wanting that. For their fave. However, if you're looking at, you know, here's what will make the game maybe more interesting, is a little bit of competition at the top. Because Iga is is truly that much better than everyone else. And I'm only saying this as a compliment, that she is leagues above her competition. And it took and it took conditions she doesn't love and an exhausting end of the season to kind of vanquish her. Right, but it also gave us a window into what Arena Sabalenka can do yes. on a tennis court. Yes. There's still so much untapped potential for her that she could beat anybody on any given day. In that semifinal, I mean, the the down the tee serve, just unbelievable. It's like it was some of the best serving you'll ever see. She also had nine double faults, but she has this incredible ability to hit one marvel at how absurdly bad it was and then just wheel and come again (laughs) right uh iga is such an incredible returner such an incredible mover that to be able to to just outfox her is kind of wild to watch at this point well iga's forehand was a little bit off that it was and arena was smart to pick at it and it worked Uh, but as you know, like a tired Sviantek, one whose forehand is a little bit off or she's misfiring, is still very, very dangerous. A not-so-small stat here for Sabalenka. She becomes the fourth woman ever to beat the top three seeds in a tournament. Those three being Sviantek, Ons, and Pagula. Mm-hmm. The round robin offers you some more chances. Like, you don't always get the opportunity to face the top three players in a, in a regular tournament. Sviantek finishes 6,030 points ahead of Ons at number two. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. In the other semifinal, Caroline Garcia beat Maria Sakkari. Uh, the semifinal queen, she, she persists. Sakkari beat... All three of her opponents in round robin competition, only to go out meekly to Garcia in the semifinals. She was so good in this tournament. Sakari in the round robin was so impressive. It was not necessarily what I expected to see, but beating Sabalenka six two six four, Ons and Pagula didn't really have great tournaments, but I've seen. People say this on Twitter, and we've said this before. Watching Maria Sakkari in person is a different experience. When I've seen her in person, I come away really impressed by her athleticism. I feel like she's much more powerful than she appears on TV. She's just a much more impressive athlete when I've watched her in person. And so I think, for some reason, this is not translating to TV. And part of it is the mental block. Part of it is failing to get past the semifinal or the final stage. But I think she's a bit underappreciated. But I get it. 
Well, because there are a bunch of haters, you you included. Yeah, and I do have like, to remind myself. Who that like to see people winning all the time, and if they don't, <laughs> then they're losers. No, but it does show you this is this is mental with Maria. She's an incredible athlete. To be beaten so convincingly after gathering up that momentum was it was disappointing. And not like, oh, oh, I'm I'm so mad at her she couldn't do this. It was just I wish we had seen a better match. Mm-hmm. And so while some people like Sabalenka and Garcia were able to carry or maintain form for just that little bit extra to get to the finish line, others kind of flamed out. And unfortunately for Coco Goff and Jessica Gula, this was um not good. It was not the tournament they had hoped for. Coco goes winless in singles. And doubles. And doubles. As uh, does Pegula. Both of them. Her partner. It's been a long season, right? Coco has played a hundred matches <laughs> this year across singles and doubles. Probably one more doubles matches than they expected. Won a few titles. I do wonder going forward, will she scale back her double schedule at all? As, as Lindsay Davenport pointed out on air at least once, this is the first time in Coco Goff's life, probably, that she's lost this many matches in a row. Between singles yeah. and doubles, something like seven or eight matches in a row. And you could see the frustration of that with her on the court. At one point, crying on a changeover. This is not something that she's used to at all. No, and it's not typically what you see from her uh, showing that kind of emotion on court. It's normal. It's a normal reaction to to losing and just being discouraged by the way you're playing. But I, you know, I hope she takes a little bit of time to just kind of regroup and have fun and and go vote. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that a little bit later. <laughs> Make some TikToks. But listen, it's also a reminder that she's still just 18 years old and has overachieved in her career so far. Like uh, she has achieved yeah. a lot. Excuse me. Has made the WTA finals in both singles and doubles this year. A top 10 player in both disciplines. Number one in doubles. Right. She achieved number one. Iga Sviantek is a nut to crack. You know, she unfortunately lost very badly again to Iga. A lot of people do. But this is a problem that Coco obviously knows that she's got a face. I, I don't know if she's gotten Iga to a 6-4 set this year. I think it's been like 6-3 and less. But there was a bagel in this one. Yeah. You say that she needs to find a way to crack the code. She needs a whole different nutcracker altogether. Because <laughs> yes. there is that yep. shell, that Sviantek shell is not budging against no. Coco Goff. And uh, people know that Coco Goff's forehand is vulnerable. And so I do wonder in the offseason, does her team think that it's too late, right? Is it too late to just scrap it and start again? Because that forehand is going to be exposed and exploited for the rest of her career if it doesn't change. It's not too late. Okay, I'm just... Yeah. I mean, does it become a matter of a tweak or an overhaul? Right, right. But right now, it is an issue that players know is there, and they will continue to pick at it. Right, but who is to say that she can't improve other aspects of her game to cover up that weakness? Sure. It's not an insurmountable problem for her. She's just 18 years old. And I hope she realizes that it's still important to keep all this in perspective. That the weight of expectation that she has probably put on herself, that she's felt from other people, that winning begets, that she's able to stave that off a little bit and keep what she's done into perspective. Because it's still incredibly impressive. Yes, I just ask because I'm curious to see what she and her team decide to do. If they decide to do anything. Mm. The other player of note here that we want to talk about is Dasha Kasatkina. Somebody who is routinely a punchline as a tennis player on tennis Twitter. Like, wow. (laughs) Try to do what she does. (laughs) You know, there is so much negative talk about her game and her serve and all of this. It is very difficult to do what Dasha Kazatkina does, or any professional tennis player. But I was so encouraged by what I saw. She beats Coco, she loses her other two singles matches, but was in an almighty battle 
with Carolyn Garcia, losing 7-6 in the third. And I think she really staked her claim. Like, she, you know, she justified, here's why I deserved to be here. Not that she needed to justify why she deserved to be there. But she showed what she can do. In doubles, this may have been one of the biggest upsets of the entire tournament. Yep. Kudemirtova and Elisa Mertens beat Krejcikova and Sinyakova in the final. 11-9 in a third set. Kudemirtova had an amazing year, almost made the singles draw here in the finals, but wins the doubles title. Listen to this. She had 39 match wins in singles. That is a lot. I feel like she is so under the radar. Like, you could have gone months without seeing her. But she was continuously winning. Kudemirtova? Yes. That's because people weren't paying attention. I feel like you right. have to actively not pay attention. <laughs> or, I mean, maybe that's giving lip service to how inaccessible tennis is to find. Mm-hmm. But if you are watching these tournaments, it may just be a case of, well, I don't really know these two players. I'm not going to watch. Sure. Because she's been, she's been there a lot. But we're talking about like one of the top 10, 12 players of the year. And I, I feel like she was she's continuously overlooked. By me, too. Pro tip, a lot of these generalizations that you say on this show, you're just talking about yourself. Oh, really? Wow, how observant. But to give her her, her flowers, she reaches three finals and singles. Melbourne, the big one in Dubai, and Istanbul. And in doubles, she wins Dubai and Rome, makes two more finals, and then finishes the year as the doubles winner. The Barbarossance continues <laughs> with her courtside appearances at pretty much every singles match. Krejcikova was just at every match as a fan just watching. And nobody had more fun all week than Barbara. And we've talked about this throughout the year, that she's gone from punchline to... A fave? A popular player, even? <laughs> Someone that's respected in yep. in no time. Uh, the necklace was fished out from the ocean. The old lady didn't drop it in the ocean <laughs> at the end. The necklace has been saved, repaired. The magic is back. You shouldn't have. <laughs> that's a little uh, millennial reference for you youngsters. Steve Simon said that the venue in Fort Worth... The Dickies Arena was, quote, a last-minute decision, and although a great arena, too big for them. The crowds were sparse for quite a bit of this tournament, especially earlier on, and there was a lot of concern that what is this final attendance going to look like given that it's on a Monday? And it ended up being a pretty decent crowd. Yes. The crowd steadily increased. To me, it was very clear that this arena was way too big. I just heard you say Serena. (laughs) What? You said that this arena, I heard you say Serena. This arena was way too big for them, which is unfortunate. I I don't know what the kind of the tennis community is in Dallas-Fort Worth. I don't know what the promotion was like. As we know, this was a very last minute choice. I think you can put two and two together. If there was, if the O2 Arena in London was clamoring and begging for the WTA finals, I think they would have gone there. And what I mean to say is that it's not like they had every stadium in the world lining up and asking them to come. There's this idea that Steve Simon and the WTA are perpetually asleep at the wheel, that faxes, communiques, emails are coming in minutely, people are knocking on the door, the phone lines are ringing, and just an unbelievable amount of ineptitude is just taking place and nobody's answering those calls, responding to those emails, and all the opportunities that are being offered to the WTA are being ignored. (laughs) I think we have to be realistic about the lip service provided to women's sport versus how many people are actually willing to put up the money and execute on what they say they support. Steve Simon spoke to Christopher Clary of the New York Times, illuminated a lot of stuff for us that's been going on recently. And it became very clear that the WTA put all of their eggs in the China basket, right? The Peng Shui situation, 
while inspiring, you know, a a boycott that surprisingly, like for something in the sports world, is not financially motivated. It's actually financially detrimental, very much so, to the WTA. Uh, and in a way, it's given them a little time to not have to deal with this issue with China still implementing all these lockdowns. Like tennis isn't a possibility in China as of now, still. It has, but... The fact that, okay, so they are boycotting China, but also COVID is causing all of these like rolling lockdowns in China. This is a cause of a lot of the WTA's problems. This is why they had to scramble and find this slapdash alternative for the WTA finals. Uh, It's not like there's a ton of arenas just open for an eight-day tournament whenever you want it. And... I suspect that like a lot of venues would probably say, well, I can probably make more money doing something else. Do you have a 500 for me? You know, do you have a smaller tournament or, you know, bad bunnies coming through and we're not going to cancel that? Right. There's a reason why it's no longer held at Madison Square Garden. Exactly. And we we may yet get there. Well, because Harry Styles has to play 10 shows in a row. (laughs) And but... We might get there, and this is not to say that the WTA's leadership is doing amazing, A++, 100%, sweetie. Like, that's not what I'm saying, but there are a lot of issues swirling around the Fort Worth decision. And so much of it has to do with China. The lower prize money, they're only giving out a $5 million purse in Fort Worth compared to a record $14 million in Shenzhen. Listen, they don't have that kind of money. The WTA is reportedly in quite a bit of debt. We're talking like in the millions of dollars here, partially because they're putting up prize money out of their cash reserves. Allegedly. Right. But what we do know, this is not alleged, is that at co-ed tournaments where prize money is not equitable, the WTA is putting up their own money to make it equitable, by the way. So there's all this stuff uh, going on with WTA business-wise that I kind of want to save for probably our WTA wrap about these negotiations with this private equity firm, CBC, the involvement of Ari Fleischer, that scumbag. Uh, We'll talk about that later. Like the politics guy? Yeah, as in George W. Bush's former press secretary. Oh my God. As in the guy who's also involved in the... The Saudi Arabia Gulf thing? Oh. What is that called? L-I-V. L-I-V. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, him. But the point I'm trying to make is that, yeah, this was, uh, if the WTA could, like, find a genie and wish, the Dickies Arena wasn't their, their number one choice. But eventually, I think they made, you know, they may do with what they had. This is a classic case of multiple things can be true, right? Should mm-hmm. you still be disappointed that the largest women's professional organization is having their crowning championship in Texas. (laughs) That's a reasonable thing to be annoyed about, especially with this happening right before election day. But the final happened the day before midterms in the US, right? If so, if you aren't, if you're an American, I get it. Why this is a problem for you. Yeah. Because the day after the finals, Texas voters basically said, like, yeah, we're, we are totally cool with the abortion ban. Thank you so much, Governor. Uh, moving forward, though, we reported on the show, and tennis journalists reported the same thing, that the WTA finals were going back to China next year. I did not imagine this. John Wertheim admitted as much today in his mailbag, because someone said, wait a second, I just read in the New York Times that Steve Simon is hedging on China, and you reported that they're going back. And I was like, okay, yeah, that, that, I, was, I thought that was pretty clear. And it turns out what the WTA said in their press release was, quote, with the event thereafter due to return to Shenzhen, China, in cooperation with long-term partner Gemdale. Wertheim is suggesting that the WTA was slightly vague on the language with the event thereafter due to return to China. 
so not 100% sure, but it was expected that they would return next year. Steve Simon, speaking to Christopher Clary, said, quote, we're still in the same place. The complication is still the Peng Shui situation. The first anniversary of the allegations have passed. Steve Simon said originally that the plan was to return to China next fall, but he feels like the Peng situation is unresolved. He wants an investigation done. He has a few conditions that he'd like the Chinese government to fulfill before they come back. Uh, And there's, of course, the fear of COVID restrictions and lockdowns that could cancel the whole thing. You could get everyone out there, spend all the money, and the thing could get shut down at any moment. Simon said, we're still in the same place. If they come forward with something else we should look at, of course we are open to it, but we haven't seen it so far. I'm hopeful we do find a resolution, that's the goal, to find the right resolution. What's the truth? Then we can move forward. Now, I think Steve Simon needs to take some responsibility in being uh, deliberately confusing about this return to China. This is more than we've heard so far. I think we were led to believe they were going back definitely. And now he's got kind of a set of conditions. He's been a politician about it because on one hand, he has contracts that he probably feels legally bound to. He has moral obligations to himself and the tour and all the women on tour to see this through and make good on his promise to boycott China, right? To show that his his actions have some teeth to it. But there's a certain amount of inevitability about it, in a sense. Right. You're not going to get this. Like- China is not budging on this. It's clear. Mm-hmm. So for me, this reads as kind of a laying the groundwork for what's inevitable. I don't like it. I don't have to like it. <sighs> but but they have partners and investors they're trying to uh, keep happy or keep at bay at least. I mean, keep the tour afloat as well. <laughs> yes. But he, you know, he said openly that if this stalemate continues, that the WTA is looking at cities that are interested in multi-year deals. They're not interested in another one and done. He says that there are other cities that are interested in several-year deals. And, of course, WTA fans have their wish lists. The The finals were successful in Singapore. Guadalajara was a big hit last year. Mm-hmm. If they want it. We saw two Guadalajara tournaments this year. Mm-hmm. One of them being uh, WTA 1000, but not the tour finals. Right. You know, uh, we would love to see the, the tour finals in Latin America somewhere. If that could happen, that would be amazing. I think the, the message is, yeah, we want to return to China, but we understand we have to entertain serious advanced planning with other possibilities. But still, and this is something we'll talk about uh, a bit later in the season, as in later this month, <laughs> financially... They are in a really, really precarious position, which has led them to seek investment from outside sources. So you're saying the whole logic money is not enough money? Well, what I'm saying is that they're apparently they've already voted to to look into this deal with CVC, the private equity firm. And Simon says they're kind of in final negotiations. Mm. Okay. And that's that's not a takeover. You know, they're not buying a majority stake, but it's significant. The men were in Paris this past week. Were they? Holger Rune was. Novak Djokovic was. They were. I have to say, Paris usually escapes my notice. Not completely, because we have a podcast and I have to report on it. And you love telling people (laughs) the tennis that you don't watch. No, Paris indoors is like the, the superfluous Masters event. If it didn't exist, would anyone care? Yeah, Federer and Djokovic fans. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> you're showing. Your I guess bi- I'm not them. You're showing your bias here. <laughs> uh, it has to be said that Huna's achievements over the past few weeks are pretty incredible. Even though I don't like the kid, in an incredible run in Paris, starting with Stan Wawrinka, he beat five top ten players in a row. That's after beating 
a resurgent Vavrinka in the first round. Mm. Those five players. Urkacz, Rublev, Alcaraz in the quarters, Felix in the semis, and then Djokovic in the final. Coming from being down a break in the third set. Mm-hmm. 7-5 in the third set. This is after losing the first set. Like we talked about with Felix last week, momentum and confidence, there is no replacement for it in sports. His trajectory over the last few weeks, it's like it it probably feels unstoppable for him. Well, he took to Twitter today to tell us how how much hard work <laughs> pays off. And he showed us a graphic yes. of his rise through the rankings. It was a graph, even, Thank of his you. rise yes. through the rankings this year. It was a line graph. It was, it was upward. It's landed him in the top ten. Yeah, and as much as we're joking, it is um, kind of amazing. It's an exceptional achievement. <laughs> yes. Period. Yes. We are going to have a little bit of fun at his expense because he makes it so easy he does yeah but it is an exceptional achievement he ended uh felix ogele sims win streak he becomes the first alternate for turin the uh the year in finals for the men he withdrew from the next gen finals obviously because you know i mean i would half expect him to play both well i know right? <laughs> if there were one player to play both it would be him <laughs> yes the next gen finals are going on right now i i do not have the bandwidth for that yeah in past years we've talked about the next gen finals loves testing out innovations they're they're always messing with the rules and conventions of the sport which is fine like that's the perfect place to do it i'm so disengaged at the moment there's too much to talk about mm. during his uh, first match with Stan Wawrinka, Holger Huna, you know, he did what he does. He kicked the net during the second set, and the umpire, Aurelie Tort, had to come down and actually fix the net before they could resume play. And I believe he got a code for unsportsmanlike conduct. But what's worse is that he got a lecture from Dad at the end of the match. Well, he claims that wasn't the case. Okay, well, he's claimed a lot of things. <laughs> Lest we forget Yawgate. <laughs> you maintain to this day that it would give you so much pleasure if Casper actually did what he was oh accused God. of doing. If Holger's account was 100% true, Casper would have a fan for life. <laughs> because he would be the best faker in history. Whoever said that man doesn't have a personality. <laughs> right. It was clear that Felix was a little bit gassed by the end of this, winning all those matches. Oh, you're moving right past uh, Uncle Stan at the net? Yeah, what Calling is, Holger, yeah, what, telling him to stop acting like a baby? Like, what, what am I supposed to say to that? Well, it wasn't like Angie versus Bianca. It was more sincere. It felt more paternal. Mm-hmm. Like, you're. it felt like you're not a bad kid, but like you need to deal with this behavior now. Was it the time? Was it the place? Of course not. At the net after the match, like... And of course you can say, is Stan the best uh, vessel for this message? Probably not. I still enjoyed it. Yeah, it's... They can both miss me with that. <laughs> Paris also brought us this video that went viral outside of the tennis community of Novak Djokovic's team mixing what he calls... Not what we call, what he called, jokingly, his magic potions. We had the Sanderson sisters in the crowd, <laughs> stirring the pot, mixing a potion to give to... <laughs> oh my god, this was so funny. Like, I, you know why it's it's funny to me? Because it makes people so mad that tennis journalists and the fans are saying, like, what's going on here? Yeah. First of all, let's say off the bat, I don't think that if a player was ingesting something... Uh, illicit that their team would mix it in the stadium right but if there were a player who would be brazen or stupid enough to do it this would be the camp <laughs> right. based the, based on precedent right and people were like oh lance armstrong was so brazen that he doped literally in front of everybody and assumed he'll never get caught right i'm referring to of course the debacle in australia last year right completely brainless stuff that Mm. we're all subjected to. But what I think this highlights for me is just how quickly and eager we are to believe the worst about somebody because we don't like them, Mm. Mm. because we're not a fan of them. 
Because the most logical explanation, if you think about it, or you listen to what other people are saying about it, is that this is a trade secret kind of thing. Exactly. It could be like, not a copyright thing necessarily, but like Novak and the team not wanting other camps to know what he's doing to gain a legal competitive edge. Yeah, yeah. Or it could be that the owners of these potions don't want <laughs> their individual ingredients that are being mixed <laughs> known to the public. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're, totally, totally. There are a lot of things that make plausible sense. It's just unfortunate for them that they didn't have this pre-mixed mm-hmm. before they went to the match, that yeah. there was somebody on tennis Twitter sitting right there who was videoing the whole thing. And then the cover-up is always worse than the crime. Yes, because in this case, there is no crime. But why are you so... Why are they so goofy? They're so weird. Because as you said, this is probably... There are probably like a few reasonable explanations. Like this could be a proprietary blend that they don't want to get out. Either the manufacturer or Novak's team doesn't want people to see it you know like you know like how when regular folk go out and they're like oh my god i got my gucci i got my coach i got my michael kors i got not michael kors i'm just saying i got my brand name shit Mm -hmm. but you don't got the celebrity brand name shit exactly do you know what i mean like you are not being let into the back room you have the version that they sell in nordstrom (laughs) not the one that they sell to serena like you uh, don't, you can't buy the super Gatorade that Djokovic is the drinking. super Gatorade. Uh, the other possibility is like it could be uh, he might be using a non-sponsored brand. But why are they so weird? This is continually what Djokovic's team does. Is like they draw attention to the the goofiest things and act weird, and then wonder why people think they're weird. Right, but that was why, my takeaway. But why would you be afraid of anything when you've got Enforcer Yelena? To come clean up the business on the internet afterward. <laughs> Is she still allowed on I, the internet? I wouldn't be scared. Of course, she was over here litigating all this on oh. Twitter. Uh, well, I assume that Instagram has banned her and her IP address. This was Twitter. Oh, okay. Well, Twitter doesn't have any rules anymore. No. Mm-hmm. Back to the young Dane. You know, Patrick Moratoglu has made this big show of how he's his new coach and what have you, blah, blah, blah. But the coach that's been with Holger this entire time is still on his team. Like Patrick is not his main coach. Like this is very much for show. And so what I want to know is, is this an arrangement of convenience whereby Patrick isn't necessarily giving him day-to-day or even week-to-week instruction, but he has free access to the Marataglu compound, the academy, Mm -hmm. where he can train and come and go as, as he pleases and also gets to social climb to the brand name the coach brand name and then patrick then gets to have his little intern post about these wins on the weekend and take claim it's it's actually a good question like i wonder how much input patrick has day to day because he he hasn't said oh i've taken over as halger's head coach i've joined the team for this period where simona is whatever uh, at the time, well, no, I mean, at the time it was while Simona is injured, I'm going uh-huh. to join Holger's team. Uh, but now we're in a very different situation, of course. But uh, I'm actually curious, and not even in a shady way, I wish players were allowed to be more open about, like, so so what's the arrangement here? Like, do you get to go train at the house that Serena built for free? Like, is... <laughs> Is that the deal? Um, is Patrick coaching you all the time? Uh, are you paying him? Is he paying you? <laughs> like, I am I am actually interested in that contractual stuff that they're never allowed to talk about. This will be a good time to circle back to Steve Simon. Because uh-huh. he was in the news a lot this past week and a half. And one of the things that made a lot of folks scratch their heads, us included, was when he came to the defense of Simona Howe. Saying, quote, I believe her that she didn't intentionally do something here. That being said, I do believe very strongly in our anti-doping program, and I think it's a good one. And our players support it too. And if you ask Simona, she supports it. I'm very confident that as we go through the process, the truth is going to come out, and we will deal with it accordingly. But I have a lot of sympathy for Simona, because I would never question her integrity. 
This is so strange to me, and it it does. Feel... What is a what is a conflict of interest? <laughs> does tennis have any of those? Uh, yeah. Um, so the anti-doping process exists outside of the federations and outside of the ATP and the WTA for a reason to eliminate potential conflicts of interest. Right now, it sits with the International Tennis Integrity Agency. This is uh, an independent agency that was created by the seven governing bodies just last year. Uh, But it's independent on purpose, right? Anti-doping is at arm's length on purpose. It shouldn't sit with the leagues or the federations. It's very, very strange to me that the CEO of the Women's Tennis Association is commenting on an open doping case where one of his players, one of his top 10 players, has tested positive for a banned substance. There's, There's no question about that. The question is, did she ingest it intentionally? Uh, what concentration was it in her blood? Could it have been accidental? I feel like the only response is, this is a matter I cannot comment on. Wishing her luck. Ex- exactly. It is so bizarre to me that he would say anything about this. And what if it turns out she loses this appeal? And, you know, the, the decision is upheld. Does that make him look like an asshole? It was wild to me. We were previously talking about Paris. Did we finish that? Uh, mostly. We, you put Gilles Simon on this agenda, and I'm not sure why. I said Gilles Simon lives to torment James. Oh. <laughs> I added something. Because I, I asked you, when did this start? Because all year, you've been asking, this man is not retired yet? And then given the opportunity to put you out of your misery, Andy Murray failed in Paris. Right. Thanks a lot. Thanks I mean, a lot, Andy. Just as we expected, a three-hour marathon of brutality. Not even talking about the tennis. Just unnecessary stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but you have here that it started when I got a trivia question right on a Rogers Cup shuttle about Gilles, and they gave someone else the prize? What? Yeah, I must have been shy then. I just looked it up. In 2008, Gilles Simon beat Roger Federer in Toronto. And you'll recall that in those days, nobody beat Roger Federer. Yeah. Oh, we were there for that. We were. And on the on the shuttle, on the way to the venue, because York University is so big, they asked, I got the question right, I was the first one to answer, and they gave someone else the prize. This is not Gilles' fault, but it just, he's been my torturer ever since. Mm. On and off the court. Right. He beat Andy, and then he goes on to beat Taylor Fritz, and this fairy tale run is happening, only for Felix to just... Wipe him out. Just when you thought Felix was exhausted from all of these matches he was winning. But what exactly did Simon say in the past to make him problematic? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. In case people forgot, all you have to do is Google Gio Simon women. And it comes up. In 2012, he said that women don't deserve equal prize money because they're not nearly as entertaining. Yes, I hear you, everyone. He would not be unique in the ATP for saying or thinking such things. I just don't like him, all right? Mm. He, you know, went on to say, oh, they're not as entertaining. Oh, no, wait. What I mean is, oh, they don't play as long. No, actually not that. Let me scratch that, because I don't actually want to see women play five sets. So what? what is the truth, Gilles? As always, with these sorts of arguments, the ideology always comes first. It's always an ideological argument before the logic. Mm -hmm. So we see it time and again with equal prize money. And apparently you weren't the only one who didn't like Simon because according to Howard Bryant in 2012, teenager Sloane Stevens was a ball girl in Florida and he once hit her with a ball and didn't apologize. And she disliked him ever since. This was written in 2012. Wouldn't you? I could not believe this when I read it. (laughs) When this whole thing bubbled up, it was at Wimbledon, of course. Maria Sharapova said, listen, listen, nobody packs stadiums for Gilles Simon. They come to see me. And he said, yeah, you're right. They do come to see Sharapova. Serena was asked, of course. Kim Kleisters was asked about it. Everybody. And, you know, it just left a sour taste in my mouth. He said that everybody... Everybody in the top 100 of the ATP agrees with him. They're just too afraid to say it. And I say, well, I guess that was your misfortune that you said it out loud because now we get to hate you. And I haven't liked him ever since. Well, au revoir. The woman, as you mentioned, they've moved on to the Billie Jean King Cup. 
I said that Coco had lost seven or eight matches in a row. She did win one today. The U.S. won okay. their rubber. She's back playing with Katie McNally. And after Madison Keys lost her match and Danielle Collins won her match, Makoko secured the win. All right. The youngins move on to Milan for the next-gen finals. And the men are preparing for the ATP finals, which start next week. Rafa is already there. He had his first practice. Carlos Alcaraz will not be there because he sustained an ab injury or, or some sort. And he actually had to retire from his match against Holgaruna in the quarterfinals. And subsequently pulled out of both Davis Cup and the ATP finals. So when that happened, Taylor Fritz got into the ATP finals. And that precipitated Holger after he won the tournament to become the de facto second alternate. He now becomes the first alternate. Alcaraz's uh, season-ending injury is shocking. This was this is wild. But is it shocking? It is actually for him to miss the year-end finals for this. Disappointing. Yeah, yeah. But like the way that dude plays and how much he played this year, there's going to be a wear and tear in the body. We kind of take it for right. granted that he's young and he can do anything on a tennis court. But the way he moves on a tennis court, uh, this is. For me, not shocking at all. Okay. Uh, this, my God, Taylor Fritz getting into the year-end finals, this has to be written by Netflix. <laughs> well, I, I cannot wait for this little show to come out, this docuseries, oh, because... You can... I'll pass. No, you aren't. You, you cannot pass. You know, We have to talk about no, it. No, people at work were recently talking about how the F1 documentary got them into the sport. I was like, oh, yeah, they're, they're actually doing the same thing for tennis. But I'm not looking forward to it. And what did they say to that? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> but listen, this is an opportunity not just for the sport to get new eyes on it, but also for us who follow the sport to learn new things about the sport and the behind-the-scenes stuff, and also maybe some insights into some of the players that we would not get to see. Okay, Fair enough. I just, I don't want these bullshit manufactured storylines when it's stuff we've already seen. Like when it's tournaments we watched and we actually know the truth and tennis fans already observed it. We know some of the And now they're trying to like attract, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, locals to the sport. They're going, it's like a reality show. Okay. um, Well, I I just, I just hope it's not the Real Housewives version of tennis. Of which you watch many franchises. That would be actually entertaining. But what I mean is that reality TV bears very little resemblance to reality. Mm. You're being a bit of a downer. I am. Quentin Moutet has been given the boot by the French Federation. They said, no mas. That's Spanish? That's a different language. Thank you. They said, we have had it with your antics and we are no longer supporting your tired trifling ass. Basically, in so many words, uh, they withdrew financial support. They said he will be banned from using Federation coaches because of his behavior on court. They said, quote, his behavior on the court does not correspond to the values that the FFT wants to transmit. This comes after he got into a shoving match with Adrian Andreev at the Challenger in Orléans. He was fined 15,000 euro for that incident. Uh, But this is like one of... One in a line of many, many incidents similar to Benoit Pair. He was defaulted in Adelaide uh, in this past January for swearing at the chair umpire. And you may recall that just last year, the French Federation declined to choose Pair for the Olympic team after his, quote, deeply inappropriate behavior. The inappropriate behavior they were talking about was spitting on the court during a pandemic tanking matches left and right, defying and breaking COVID bubbles. This is in Benoit you're talking about. In, in, yes, this is Benoit. But the French Federation is no stranger to withdrawing funding from players who act out. Elsewhere, the WTA has started a program designed to attract more women coaches to the sport. This is great stuff. I feel like this is the league really putting their money where their mouth is. There's obviously a a shocking lack of female coaches among top women players and then male players, of course. But the WTA is focused on what it actually can change. I've seen a few different numbers in a few different sources, but 
there are approximately six women coaches who are employed privately by players within the top 150. Six. Of course, this doesn't include women coaches employed by national federations. Right. Just like with pay equity across industries, there are a lot of factors for this. One of them is that a lot of female players will choose male coaches who can double as their hitting partners. But another factor is just plain good old discrimination, right? Mm -hmm. Or lack of opportunities, uh, a lack of tradition, and just not a pipeline of female coaches at this level. So this WGA program seeks to address that. Like, how do we attract, develop, and retain female coaches in the WTA? There'll be a mix of off-season training in person, a 10-week online certification course, as well as shadowing existing WTA coaches. Ideally, I imagine this coaching program is also a way to to bake in a safeguarding and anti-harassment and abuse teaching as well. Just professionalizing the job of being a coach and also allowing the WTA to have some oversight about how do we train coaches, how do we certify them uh, on a professional level, and how do we give more opportunities to women? A A lot of women will be former players, of course. Well, given that a lot of these women like to have the coach double as the hitting partner, in a lot of cases, when you have a retired woman player, their physical gifts have depleted. It's just a, f- a fact of life, right? Like a Conchita Martinez cannot rally with a Garbinia Muguruza. Sure. Right. And played in a very different era. Exactly. So I get that part. But surely this has also been a function, as you said, of exclusionary decision making. And this hopefully goes a long way toward rectifying that. Because as, we, as we've seen, especially the top players, they can afford to pay both a coach and a hitting partner. Yes. Along these lines, you know, we mentioned safeguarding, we mentioned abuse in tennis, which unfortunately is still quite common. A video has been floating around the internet recently that showed purportedly a father uh, beating his daughter on a tennis court. This video was on Twitter without any trigger warnings. It, it is really shocking. I didn't want to see it. And then when I saw it, I stopped watching. Yeah. The, the young girl is reportedly 14 years old. And is a junior tennis player. The video was posted by the Serbian activist Igor Juric. And it was shared by Igor Sviantek's mental coach Daria Abramovic. Shared by Judy Murray. Pam Shriver even tagged Novak Djokovic and asked him to get involved. And the connection here is, I guess, this was filmed in Serbia, in Belgrade. The family supposedly lives in Serbia, but they are from China. And uh, it, I mean, it casts a really disturbing light on some of the things that, unfortunately, we know go on in tennis, still go on in tennis. And this seemingly went on unchecked on a public tennis court for other people to see. Someone was there to film it and then share it. It, I mean, it really highlights how difficult it is as an international sport to regulate these sorts of things. Uh, And it shows like what a massive problem we have on our hands. And by the time a tennis player gets to be of age and in control of their finances, able to make decisions, if they're even able to cast out of that abusive shadow, cast themselves out of it, Mm -hmm. the damage and the trauma that's already been done and accumulated to the player's psyche, it's unimaginable. Yelena Dokic's autobiography has been out for a long time. A lot of people have read it and know exactly what went on. And you think of the the number of people in tennis who knew what was going on at the time and failed to stop it. Either didn't try, didn't think it was their place, or tried and were unsuccessful. So, like, it's it's really, really discouraging to know that this still happens. We have such a massive problem as far as, like, how dispersed and how fragmented tennis leadership and governance is. But this is so horrifying to watch and as much as i hate that this video was shared for everybody to see and that this young girl will grow up knowing that people saw it i only hope that the fact that daria and pam and judy murray and all of these people care goes some small way to to help address the problem one last bit of business before we finish the episode a few Oh. A few, actually. And I'm going to pair them together because That's there's why, a connection. Yeah. Okay. So they, they both involve Nick Kyrgios. 
The first one, before I let you finish with the juiciest, <laughs> the juicier, mm. I should say. If you recall, in at Wimbledon, in his run to the final, Kyrgios encountered a fan who he claimed was drunk and had like 72,000 beers or something. <laughs> and so that fan sued him. Uh, yes. And now there's been a resolution. Quote, I told the umpire that a fan who I now know to be Anna Palas, 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 was distracting me during the match, believing that she was drunk. I accept that belief was mistaken, and I apologize. To make amends, I have donated £20,000 to the Great Ormond Street Hospital Charity, a charity chosen by Miss Palas. I will not be commenting on this matter again. You know what? I understand that America has a lot of problems, but one thing it has going for us is liberal laws about defamation, slander, and free speech. <laughs> you other countries need to get better at defamation because this is ridiculous. You wouldn't have been pissed if he called you drunk? If I was acting like an asshole? Actually, I take that back because now I might get sued. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, Ms. Paulus, now everybody knows her name. Now everybody knows that she was the one acting out at the Nick Kyrgios match. I just don't really know. I don't I don't know what the point of this is. I think it's absolutely ridiculous that Nick or any tennis player was dragged into a lawsuit over this. If you're in public and you are acting out at a match, that's on you, boo. Okay. And I say that as like no defender of Nick Kyrgios, but this is, I guess this is like the most American I'll ever get. As a defender of being able to speak freely. Wow. And uh, no, really, I don't defend, I do not defend hate speech, period. But defamation laws in some other countries, like, I mean, Germany is like censoring journalism. A lot of European countries have pretty strict defamation laws. This is very to American of you. To me, that's yep, crazy. This is probably one of yeah. the most American you've been on the show. So carry on to the next well, Kyrgios speaking, bit. Speaking of Americans, this actually doesn't have a whole lot to do with Kyrgios, but it's like in the same uh, spirit. Riley Opelka yesterday tweeted some bullshit about, imagine telling people to go vote. Just, at, at first I thought, from just a cursory scrolling of my timeline, that this was a dig at Ben Rothenberg, because he had just tweeted mm -hmm. about voting. And it could be. However... There's also speculation that this was a dig at his fellow American, Kogo Goff. And it, it, it may not be, right? Just to protect myself from a defamation lawsuit, I have no idea who or what or if anything this was in response to. But Riley's whole MO is like, everything is cringe. Caring about anything is stupid and uncool. And I'm going to make fun of you for tweeting a lot. Or I'm going to make fun of your profile picture. His The humor is so incredibly juvenile. Like, calling it high school would be a compliment. No, but to be humorous, one has to have intellect and wit. And he's devoid of both. Uh, it is strictly I mean, contrarianism. That's all it is. Period. It's contrary for no reason. With, with nothing, no principle underlining it. I've read that. I'm like, what are we talking about here? You're mad about people telling people to go vote? Who cares? Like, I realize that in your position, you've probably been untouched by various political changes. You don't care if people vote. You think it's cringe to tell people to vote. I mean, we've always known that his, I think it's his uncle, is a right-wing wingnut. We just, at the start of his career, were giving him the grace of not holding him to that. Right, but I don't care. Like, I don't know what Riley's politics are. All I know is that he is incredibly juvenile and ignorant on his Twitter. And I'll tell you, if this is in response to Ms. Coco Goff, it is on site. There's nobody I know, aside from the person sitting next to me, who can hold a grudge like me. You would literally be punching up, which is one of the <laughs> ethoses of this show. <laughs> Are you height shaming me? Of course, I mean, David Law got in a good dig, actually, with regard to this tweet. Yeah, but he's like six foot plenty too. Right, but David said pick on someone your own size. Somebody responded to that tweet saying, So edgy on Twitter, a little more subservient on Tennis Channel though, aren't we, big guy? <laughs> oh, it gets better. So then he responds, Exactly. 
Politics and ideology don't exist in tennis, or at least they didn't when I fell in love with the game. When did you fall in love with the game? When in, in when, fantasy land? When your new bestie was being harassed in Indian Wells? Like, um, like when your besties with Venus Ebony Star Williams? Like I presume you fell in love with the game somewhere around two thousand one. That wasn't political in tennis? It's, the, it's, it's just, beyond... It's goofy. It's, it's goofy. No, man. It's not just goofy. It's daft. Well, it is. It's uh, daft and dim. From day one. And I, I hope we haven't strayed from this. But from day one, the only reason we did this podcast was to talk about how, like, the political is personal. I know that sounds very second wavy, but politics is everywhere. Power is everywhere. Ideology exists whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Ideology just doesn't mean who you go to vote for. Ideology informs everything that you do in life. Well, uh, he also goes on to say, quote, I don't believe in ideology. Well, that's what I mean. That doesn't really matter, does it? Ideology is a way for us to sort of classify and group and understand how politics functions, how it informs our everyday life, how we create a set of beliefs him advocating for change on the ATP is driven by ideology. It's also driven by self-interest. But, like, you can not believe it exists, but that doesn't make it true. But I want to get back to the the issue at hand here, is that if this is a direct confrontation of Miss Coco Goff, this is a dedicated hate podcast from now on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say that. Because this is a Coco Goff advocacy podcast the other thing that riley loves to do is mock people for how much they've tweeted their their total number of tweets yes dude you spend half your life especially now that you're on crutches and like holed up in some rehab center unable to play this is all you do you're on twitter you're on twitter 24 7 david law responds to him saying imagine tweeting quote imagine telling people to go vote to which he quote tweets and says, imagine tweeting 86,000 times. Dude already living in the metaverse. <laughs> I mean, that was so hilarious. What? Cool dig, bro. Like, and then here comes Tweedledum to reply, Nikirios, with six laugh cry emojis. Hit the-, the height of comedy, truly. It's, so, it's not enough. It's so crazy. It's not enough to be stupid you have to be mean about it too i mean they're just telling on themselves truly it's Mm -hmm. to even call it high school is offensive to high school jocks honestly (laughs) like this is some kind of delayed development and wrapping yourself in toxic masculinity like i i i I just you know it's a life beyond my comprehension it is and i know that beard stinks Mm. just the beard (laughs) just leave it alone (laughs) i think that brings us to the end. We're going to get a lawsuit for you know, alleging that his beard stinks. Yeah. This, Good thing it's in North America. You know, this, this used to be a reasoned, well-balanced podcast. We used to live in a society, uh, but we don't anymore. I'm finished with this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Initially, we had planned four more episodes after this for the, the season, A Max Of... We'll probably still record all four, but the season will probably end with just a WTA season wrap and an ATP season wrap. Likely, the Serena episode that we've been teasing will start season nine. Oh, well, this might be news we'll, to we'll you. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, we'll we see. have not discussed this, so. Uh... I mean, I also want to do a pop culture episode. We haven't done one in years, okay. which is perfect for the what off season. Are, what are we going to talk about? The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Oh my God, there's stuff to talk about. You. You live your life in pop culture. That's all you do. Okay, fair enough. In TikToks and tweets and housewives. <laughs> We've there's body serve merch. I've done a lot of redesigning on the store website. Different color combinations, different logo combinations, one that's brand new altogether. And we've also launched phone cases. So you can get in any of six or seven designs an iPhone case of any series or a Samsung case of any series. Unfortunately, it's just those two brands. We have Google phones, so we cannot rock a body serve phone case. And Redbubble is doing their biggest sale of the year thus far. I know I've said that before, but this one actually is it. (laughs) It's 20 to 60% off the entire store. Dog blankets are 40% off. 
pet mats are 60% off. Mugs, I believe, are 30 to 40% off as well. We've added a I just don't have the bandwidth mug in a really nice deep purple. I can't believe that wasn't in the store before. Mm-hmm. And Vince is getting, finally, uh, in this house we support women's tennis bowl. He mm-hmm. doesn't know yet. <laughs> So check that out. You can find that and everything BodyServe related at linktree.com slash thebodyserve. I'm Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We somehow had the bandwidth to make it through this episode. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you very much.